that you're born an Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola. Happy to be joined today by two of my favorites, the notorious PLB Pat O'Boyle and Ms. Dolores Alfieri Taranto, the first lady of the Italian American Podcast, and my good friend, who I have not caught up with in quite a spell. So glad to look at you today on this Zoom, Dolores. Good to be together. I know I put a little uh, mascara on and brushed <laughs> my hair, so I have my video on. <laughs> <laughs> I try to do video when we do these because it really is such a difference. I mean, Anthony and I, when we were doing the show, you know, just to us, when we started it, we like Zoom wasn't really, a, it wasn't a thing really, you know, this Zoom kind of became so popular during quarantine. Sure. Uh, but we would do Skype and we just realized, at least at the time, this is some five, seven years ago, that the quality just was so bad, the connection, if we did video. So we did all of our, all of those like first couple years were just audio. So we would never see the guest, believe it or not. But now I realize even doing my other podcast, Bella Figura, how nice it is to look at people. It really, it really is like the next best thing to being in person with them. It does make a big difference. Actually. Yeah. I find like, you know, sometimes every guest always asks us, even though we send stuff in the prep notes and all of the onboarding, are you sure this is not video we're going to use? And I think people are hesitant to come on video because they feel like it's going to be used out in public but the truth of the matter is it is nice. It's a, ni- it's a nice thing to be able to see and communicate people and feel them and read them and makes a big difference. And then there, and there's Pat who never uses his video. Yeah, that's true. Pat never uh, puts a video on. You want to know the God's honest truth? I want to hate people and live in a cave and die there. You know, like Santa Rosalia? She, <laughs> she went in there, she died, and they found her like 300 years later with goats. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. That's a, like life in a cave sounds nice sometimes. I understand. I went. I I went out for a walk because I I'm fat and I don't want to get fat tour. So I went out <laughs> to get my we call that the sunlight, the vitamin D because they said that would have saved yeah. me from the plague. And I'm walking around sweating like a pig. So what am I gonna do? Have my sweaty fat Irish face on your camera? Well, you all sure. well when you put it that way. Hair, Thank you. And you're doing your eyebrows and you're putting on your makeup because you're. Well, you are you a millennial? No. Uh, she's on that who, board. Who are you nah, talking really. to? You, Doris. He, da, John I don't 100%. even know. He's, I, I'm old. I don't think so. 85 to 91. That's like the champion years of millennialism. I'm not a millennial. I'm 83. I don't know. They say 81. I don't know. 83. You're all the same. See, all his hairs are perfect. His <laughs> hair's perfect. You all. So I got to groom. I got to hi. And I got to be positive. Hi. How's life? Fantastic. Just living the life. I just get my hair cut know. so I don't have to cut it. I just get it short enough so I don't. So I just like push my calyx down after the shower and I'm done. I'm not much for self grooming, as you know. It takes a lot to get me to want to like. John, you look skinnier. I lost 23 pounds. Oh my gosh! So no kidding. Wow. Mod on. Was it that much? Yeah. Well, you paid for it, John. That didn't come off for free. I did. I wow. suffered a lot, but I did. I did lose 23 pounds. I didn't realize you had 23 pounds to lose. It was all in my bonds and in my chin here that was where i was holding wow. on to it yeah i yeah, started to look like a, look a lot skinnier gumdrop so i was like you know what <laughs> <laughs> when you're growing facial hair strategically to hide that extra chin parts of your body yeah you're like okay that, that's what really did it to me i had like a mu- i like the hulk hogan mustache just to like create lines and i'm like i don't i look like a wacko i don't want to do this so well good for you if i lost 23 pounds you wouldn't even notice <laughs> <laughs> no, no that's not true, that's not true. Yeah, i don't care i can't do no more I walk here, I walk there. Now my my white Irish skin is starting to get those age marks. I got I got to be careful. I don't want to wind up like them, like all wrinkled, and that's the worst skin in the world to have. You sir, you notice at a certain age, like you Irish people tank. They hit forty and they go down (laughs) like the Titanic. We have we have uh, more natural oils, I think, in the skin to keep us tight. 
but you do you do loosen <laughs> up though like i find like i used to oh, yeah. you know, used to lose weight and my jawline would come back and now all of a sudden i notice it's kind of like a turkey i'm getting like a hangy thing under oh here. yeah and then Horrible. if you're oh, a woman and you have, get pregnant and bear a child everything expands and <laughs> always want to come back where it was no it's not coming back. so i'm gonna say that happens in the movies yeah. it's not coming back it's There's not no easy if, if you if you looked at the, the great depression people in the 1930s were my age and they looked like they were 97 that's I'm true 46 right? and so yeah we, we cheated the clock a lot you know you look at pictures of my grandparents from like their late 40s and they look like they did when i knew them in their 60s and 70s me you know too I mean? me too yeah. yeah yeah same thing hard lives yeah hard lives oh I, I i went to that big latin mass event and i'm trying to i'm trying to sell them on house dresses <laughs> i'm really no i'm really pushing house dresses i say if you really want to be traditional you should be wearing a house dress around the house i think we should go in the house dress business I found a weird advertisement on Amazon the other day. I was looking at something for Rosella, and there was a, a house dress at, being sold on Amazon, but the models were young glamour models. Yes, and it was glamour really models weird. and house dresses. It was very yes. bizarre. It almost like a joke, but it was it was real. I mean, they were no. for sale. I don't know. We're going to bring it back. We're going to make it the hot, chic. He's been we're saying this for years. One day it will come. Let me tell you something. In the 80s, I used to go up to CVS and buy fountain pens. <laughs> I was the last man to buy an Old Spice shaving mug when they still sold it. I bought the straight razor thing when it was still on the market, and I was 20 years ahead. And Dolores, one day, there's going to be hot young models walking around Chelsea in house dresses. and I That will be them. your heyday. Be your heyday. They're airy. No, your heyday. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 yeah, but think about how they're, they're cooling. For day like today, they're ventilated, right? They got big okay. pockets. You could put your cell phone. You know those oh, pockets? My grandma stuck with macaroon in. You could stick mm -hmm. the cell phone in. It's all practical. It's all practical. I do like a, like right now I have a dress. I do like a loose dress. And then I just put my apron on. And then I can just do what I need to do. I can clean. I can cook. I put my phone. Dolores, you wear an apron regularly? Yeah, often. Yeah, almost daily, I would say. What do you say? Montezina? Yeah. How do you call it? I'm Montezina, yeah. Yeah, you didn't know that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just tracking because you 99% of the time you and I have the same words. Right, agreed. Robert called some word like other bodies, right? We wouldn't understand. Like I can say Montezina to you. Yeah, but I say Montezina to you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right, absolutely. She's good. I'll say somebody's that I'll never it won't even sound like Montezina, it'll sound like Martian astronaut. Yeah, that's what Martian That's right. No, I, every word you, I, I've never had a word that you said that I did not understand. Agreed. We are, it's very so similar. Right. And I, and listeners, I text Pat all the time and ask him how to spell nobly down words because I, unfortunately I don't know how to do it. And he's always translating things. And then yeah, sometimes is, he'll be like, how he'll text me and say, would you say this like that? Is it the same the way you say it? So it's yeah. really hard to find a standardized spelling for anything, right? Especially for, Dialectical especially stuff, especially not but on because, yeah, I mean, I mean, 100 Neapolitans, 3,000 opinions. That's true, yeah. And, and standardizing these things, you know, you, you try to go into the literature and see what's like a standardized version of you know, either Neapolitan or Sicilian. And, and it's happening nowadays more because of the internet, I think. I think these things are standardizing. That's a good point. But the whole school, there's a whole school now in, in Naples that started with a guy, his name escapes me, I'll remember it about 40, 50 years ago. That Neapolitan sounds do not translate well in the Latin alphabet. Hmm. So hmm. what happens is now you're trying to use, it's like writing Navajo with what Latin letters. And I say mm -hmm. that in a respectful sense because there's sounds, right? Like the je sound. If you, if you write in Cyrillic, right? If you write with the Cyrillic alphabet, there's a letter for je. There's a letter for sh. There's a lot of diphthongs. So if you, in Cyrillic, there's diphthongs that take the place of letters. In Neapolitan, like vigine. How do you sound that? So this guy came up with, and he used Latin letters, but in new combinations to express Neapolitan sounds. And you don't, it's not, it's not a transliteration using Italian. Does that make sense? I don't know if transliteration. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, somebody out there who's a linguist who's going to say I used all the wrong words. I'm not a linguist, so don't beat me up. No, I think you're making Before it you clear. send John a letter, I'm sorry. You know more than me. <laughs> Come on the show. I'm going to use the wrong word. They're going to put me up. They're going to crucify me. But that's, that's basically it. There is a Neapolitan standard at least on like you know wikipedia and things like that i mean yeah but it's using you know. the italian the, the argument they made was that the italian letters do not completely 
um, like uh, warda, so look. The W sound is completely not expressed in Italian, right? If you want to put two right. V's together. Right. And Neapolitan, wandira, for tray, right? The G becomes a W. Yeah. So you can't express that in Italian. Well, this is what happens when you have a language that is politically repressed for so long and it loses its literary trajectory. You know, it's repressed, obviously, in political means to keep it out of the public sphere as much as possible at certain times. But more importantly, you have a, a, a usurper language that comes in and takes over the literary standard. And, and it's appropriate to the conversation we're having today because, Dolores, you have a very good friend coming on today uh, who's here to join us. And uh, both of you are uh, accomplished writers. And uh, I think it'd be great for you to introduce Christopher Castellani, who's been patiently waiting uh, and listening to us while, we, while we've gone through he, this thing. He's, he's oh, I thought we were me, pretending see, like he wasn't I'm looking waiting. at his face. He's like, they're crazy. <laughs> they get me out of here. Like, they're nuts. Everybody looks at us like we're crazy. Because can, I can see you, Chris. I'm like, that with that two-way mirror? You know what the FBI used to use? One-way mirror. Gave me one-way mirror. He's yeah. like, they're really whacked. I hope I get a book sold out of this. Christopher grew up around yeah. legit Italians, so he knows all about crazy. I feel like I'm at home right now. That's great. That's why yeah, I didn't want to interrupt anybody. Tell Italian people that's an insult. <laughs> well, tell, Dolores, give us a little introduction for Chris. So Christopher and I met when he came on um, my podcast cast Bella Figura, The Tradition of Living Beautifully. He was actually one of the first, I think, two or three guests that I had on that new show. So it was really nice of you to, to agree and come on. And I do have to just make a little correction. Christopher is a much more accomplished author than I am. I appreciate you saying that, John. It's very kind of you. But Christopher has, uh, Christopher, is it three books? Uh, I didn't prep a, an intro. John didn't tell me this, so I'm weighing it. And it <laughs> has been a year since it the last three, time. It is three, three that I have here. Oh, it's fine. Yes. I, it's five, actually. Oh. It's five. So we did so, we're so well prepared. <laughs> we, we're definitely a professor. I have three goals. What's your name again? Bob? Oh, Bob. Welcome to the show. No, and Chris grew, Chris grew up with, you know, old school, legit Italian immigrant parents. And he actually has terrific stories that I'm sure he'll share with us here. Um, and one of the reasons my converse, my initial conversation with Chris was so great is that he has um, does have these stories and him and I really shared that affinity for telling our family stories and also being so freaking drawn to them. <laughs> Like just kind of obsessed with them in this way that we realized we we share and perhaps some um, of our listeners certainly do, but um, not everyone does. But Chris and I have that bug. I'm excited to talk some more about that. And Chris has written mainly about the Italian-American experience, but his most recent book is like a little twist on that. And uh, you'll you'll tell us more about that. It goes really back to the homeland, but brings in a very famous American playwright, Tennessee Williams. So without further ado, Christopher Castellani. <laughs> Hello. Hello, intro. everyone. Officially. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so and nice Chris, to see can you we again. call you Chris? Is that okay? Or you that's want Christopher fine. through the whole show? That's okay, fine. Sure. No, no, no. That's fine. I like Christopher in print, but in conversation, Chris Perfect. is fine. Um, and actually, my family calls me Christopher. So if you, when you call me Christopher, it, it feels even more like I'm with my family, but you can call me whatever, whatever, whatever works. Okay. This is um, like the Latin form of the vocative. What? It's what? like the Latin form, like, like in Latin, right? Your name, your name was like one way. And then when you called somebody, it was like shorter. Does that make sense? Oh. Mm -hmm. So that's even more, if his name is Christopher, but we say Chris, mm -hmm. that's even more deep Italian. I don't know. Cut this out, John. I, 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 I thought it was a moment because he's like, my name is Christopher. I like Chris. You can call me Chris. I'm like, wow, there's like a connection there. That's like Chris is the vocative, but that's it. I'm done. I'll go back. Right. Cool. Cool. Drinking my you, here's a, you're allowed some duds now and then, Pat. <laughs> you can strike out it's once okay. a while. How is that a strikeout? How, no, how is that a strikeout? It's a vocative case. I'm not here to like Proof gravity. Oh, vocative. Like, That's vocative. what I. Is that vocative. What he was saying? Yeah, vocative. 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 Uh, I get it now. I thought you were saying evocative. I was no, like, vocative. 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 <laughs> okay. That's got it. Okay. You, Chris, studied, Chris studied Latin because he got that. <laughs> Did you take Latin in high school? 
I actually didn't. No, I took French, believe it or not. Does French so. have evocative? I never studied French. I don't think so, but I just know some, for whatever reason. No, I took a, tra- no, I remember I took a translation course in graduate school where we would translate various, um, various poems and stories from various, from different languages. And we spent a lot of time with Latin. So that is, that is where. Yeah, I knew of course you were a smart guy. I smelled it coming out of your pores, even though we don't have smell vision. (laughs) Where's your family from in Italy? Uh, They are from a little town called Sant'Elpidio, which is on the Lazio-Abruzzo border. The closest kind of big town um, is Rieti, and then a a little bit bigger than that is Terni. It's about 40 miles northeast of Rome. Do we used to have that in the two Sicilies? I think they took that from us, too. It would make sense. Is it provincial the... it's yeah, um, it's Rieti is the is the province, Rieti. I believe. That's a yeah, good question. I think they stole that from us. I'll yeah. check that out. <laughs> I don't know which. I don't know where that historically lay on the border between the two Sicilies and the Papal States. But how do you spell it again? R I E T I. I think you've stumped John and Pat, which. Yeah. Like never happens, in tr- especially in terms of like Italian geography. I'm like, Don't worry. if it's ours, actually, we're taking it back. If we find yeah. out, we're gonna. Send it does it. actually speak to the fact that it doesn't. It is an area that almost nobody thinks about. You know? Yeah, so clearly, it is a kind of no man's land up there. Yeah, and I can't remember. Have you ever been back? Remind me. You went back many with times. your father, right? Yeah, many times. Yeah, I we went back many back. times. Come back yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. I don't expect you to remember all of that. Um, I'm remembering but... a lot more than, and I had just, but the baby was like six months old, I think, when I spoke to you. So the fact that mm-hmm. I remember that much is pretty <laughs> That's good. That's impressive, <laughs> as it is. Christopher, what, Christopher, what's the like specialty dish? Like, what are they known for? Um, I don't think they're really known for anything. I mean, all this stuff my, my parents cooked was very much like mountain peasant food, like a lot of beans, a lot of um, a lot of pork, um, you know, obviously pasta. But they, they didn't really have, as far as I know, there wasn't a particular kind of cuisine up there. Um, so mountain people. That's like, yeah. Honestly, that's how I grew up too. I mean, I know yeah. the region that my family's from is much more quote well known. But it, we, you know, like my mom recently, what did I make? I made oh. Banya cauda, banya cauda, the mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. anchovies, butter. Yeah, but that's that's Piedmontese. Yeah. Yeah, my mom was like, I don't have any. She had like no idea what that was, and personally, right. I didn't even know what it was until I was like in my twenties, and a friend introduced it to me. So, right. you know, we grew up with what pasta padan, pasta basil, right. pizza, things like that. You know, like a Sicilian yep. style. But I wonder if banya cauda is a real dish from Piedmont, or that's just like something that was made in one or two towns and it's like tiramisu became big in the 80s is that like a I real Piedmontese dish like did they go home i don't and know make it? is that where it's even from i don't know but i i will tell you it is delicious and i love it it's <laughs> one right, of add, my favorite add that, things add that to the menu when i come over with the omelet thing <laughs> i will um, you know <laughs> oh, you know christopher, what you got it christopher you live in like driving distance of her house he does Oh, you got to go yeah, over you, this. She makes this You're in pie. Connecticut? Are you oh, in Connecticut? I, I'm in Boston, actually. You're in Boston. It's, so worth, I can, listen, that's, it's worth that's the drive. It's yeah, worth the enough. drive. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm always driving down to visit my, my mom in Delaware. So I'm constantly Delaware, up and down okay. from Boston to Delaware. So I'll be over, you know, on the way. I like to cook for the team. I mean, pre-COVID, I cooked a lot. For I'm going to tell team, you but, what's on the really. menu. This is what I want. I want the rustachi that your mother make. Rustachi, mm-hmm. that's that's on the okay. checkoff box. I'm writing this no, down. No, I, I don't want a lot mm-hmm. of stuff. There's like a few specialties from your house that are on my okay. top of my list. The duck, that I, I will see one time in this life. The rustachi, the duck, and the eggs. I have to come in the morning and have the eggs, hang out all day, and then at nighttime, we'll have the duck and the rustachi. Oh, but I want the rustachi for lunch. But the rustachi for lunch, that. yeah, we'll make it a whole day. Pat, oh, that I'm sounds done. like a lovely Christopher, day. let us know when you're driving down and she's going to cook for us. <laughs> I'm ready. I yes, I Deal. will let you know for sure. Deal. That sounds amazing. And her mother's wine is the bomb. The bomb. Boom. The bomb. <laughs> the bomb. It is good. You're always welcomed, Chris. Thank you. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So before Pat takes us away, can you at least anchor us a little bit in your upbringing and tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, you know, about your, your parents? Well, let's say what type of Italian American household you grew up in, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. And, you know, a first generation, my, my parents, my, my dad came over with, his, my parents grew up, you know, with all these Italian stories, like you start in one place and then you realize, oh, let me go back a little. Oh, no, let me go back a little. Oh, no, let me go back a little That's more. the entire podcast. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So um, my, um, my parents grew up in Sant'Elpidio, the town I mentioned, in the province of Rieti, wherever that is. Um, and and they, they actually grew up pretty much on the same street in that town. Um, my mother's family owned the main store of the town. So they were essentially the aristocracy of the town. Um, and my mom had many brothers and sisters. My, my dad had a somewhat smaller family, only three siblings, and they were much more agrarian. Um, they had a sort of a farm, sort of a vineyard. Um, they were kind of, you know, on the poorer side. And so um, his family emigrated to the U.S right after World War II because my father's father was actually in the military for the Americans. So my dad and his family came over to the U.S., settled in Delaware, and then he went back to the village seven years later to find a wife and chose my mother because she was, of course, the youngest and the prettiest in the family of the aristocracy. <laughs> and um, so he was, so he, he essentially, um, you know, brokered a deal. Um, they barely knew each other, uh, but he kind of brokered a deal to marry her with her mother. And my mom essentially went kicking and screaming to the U.S., promised, you know, a life of, I mean, this is a very, you know, familiar story, right? Promised a life of ease and she could do whatever she want. Maybe she could be a model. Maybe she could be an actress, et cetera. And of course, she went to work in a factory about a week later, mm -hmm. about a week after she arrived here. And it wasn't that she was sold the bill of goods. It was just that I think there was some wishful thinking and some, um, you know, some, yeah, mostly wishful thinking in terms of what her life would be like here. Um, and essentially what I just told you is, was the inspiration for my first novel, which was called A Kiss from Madalena, which is loosely based on my mother's life and my parents' lives, lives but, uh, but deviates from it in meaningful ways. So... They moved to Delaware. My dad worked in a, also worked in a factory, car, an auto factory, and then later in bakeries and things like that. And my mother became a seamstress. And they had two kids fairly soon, Emidio and Lorena. And then I came along 14 years later, and I was a bit of a surprise. And I have a, to go back to my name, I have, a, I have an American name because my siblings named me. Uh, because they didn't want me to have, be stigmatized like they were having these very Italian names. Right. But of course, I'm the most Italian of all of us now. Um, so, <laughs> well, we had that in common, yeah. too. Yeah. Yes, and when we, we spoke, exactly. we realized how much we had in common. Yeah. Exactly. I remember, I think by the end of that conversation, you were like, are we the same? Like, are we the same person? <laughs> I thought we were, you were my long, my long lost sister. You know? <laughs> so. Because Chris is also the youngest and he, he's the one like most identifies with his heritage and of all his siblings and he, you know, this compulsion to write about it. Yep. So um, I really related to that feeling of having all these stories growing up in your heart and in your mind and around you. And then, you know, you have this temperament that's creative and then writing is your medium. And it was yep. almost like you can't move on with life unless you write it. Yeah. Just you have yeah. to write the story. Absolutely. And it did, it did. I never, and I don't know if this is true for you, Dolores, but I never like actually consciously even made the decision. Like I'm going mm. to start writing about my family because X, Y, or Z. I just started doing it. It, it came so naturally uh, because right. the stories were so much a part of my consciousness. And I think we said this too, that I felt like my parents' story was actually my own. I mean, it is my own story, but but it almost yeah. literally was my own story. I felt like I was, I grew up in that village. I emigrated. I dealt with all these things my parents talked about as I was growing up. 
Um, and um, so it's almost like when I first started writing a novel about my parents, it actually was essentially a novel that was about me and about my own childhood in the village in the 1940s or whatever, you know, even though that is not where I was actually born. So. Absolutely. 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 And I was, you know, I was, you know, as you mentioned, kind of like, you know, a bit of a quiet child. I didn't have many friends. I sensed my own difference, um, you know, um, in many ways, both, um, you know, not only uh, because I was culturally different from most of the people in my in my class, um, but because I was gay or, or, or felt that 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 sense of difference. Right. Like I didn't I couldn't right. put a I couldn't label myself that way then, but I knew there was something different. Right. So I was kind of withdrawn. And, and so I channeled that just organically into, into writing what, you know, without really thinking that, that I was doing that for like therapeutic reasons or anything. I just was doing it. Did you always intend to be a writer? Um, eventually I did. Yeah. Did. I mean, I, once I, again, I kind of fell into it and then, you know, like most kids, when you, start to do things well, your teachers notice, right? And they say, you know, you should do this, or you should think about this, or they give you books, or they give you suggestions. So like, the, the, I've always had a teacher at every stage, from middle school, high school, college, grad school, who was transformative, um, and who often literally, as I said, put things in my hands to say, you know, you read this, or think about this, or, um, and so they kind of, I think, set me on that path. And then I absolutely, was driven to continue on that path and had a bunch of goals in mind, you know, going forward. How so. old were you when you wrote your first novel? Um, let's see. I published it when I was 30. So I started writing it in my mid twenties. Um, yeah. And, and so. being somebody who has clearly been inspired by both the Italian and then the Italian American experience and that, I guess it's safe to say sense of otherness or, I think we all experience as the hosts here, this sort of inescapable Italianness that you have to express and explore. Did you have any works of literature, you know, fiction or nonfiction, I guess, in your experience growing up that you felt you could relate to? Was there any sort of literature on the Italian American experience that you felt kind of connected to? Because sometimes it's hard to find stuff that you do relate to, actually. I'm embarrassed to say no, that I did not. I mean, I, I first of all, there were no books in our house. So, um, you know, we, I did not grow up in a reading culture. And um, what, but to me, the texts that I wanted to write were actually the stories, the ones we were just talking about, the stories I would hear about the village. But I didn't have a literary model that I was writing toward that was, that had anything to do with Italians. In fact, I had a model that I was writing against I didn't want to, you know, reproduce like mafia stereotypes or stereotypes of, you know, life with Luigi or, or, you know, any, anything that felt cartoonish or that felt too broad strokes, you know, I wanted to write a more nuanced kind of, you know, exploration of what it meant to be these people. I wanted to give the characters in the novels a full, rich inner life, um, which I felt was missing from so much of the way I would see Italian Americans and Italians depicted in media. But I'm embarrassed to say that I did not actually find much literary inspiration among Italian or Italian American literature. So. It's funny you say that because I, um, I was reading this weekend about Mario Puzo's experience writing The Godfather. And mm -hmm. I don't know why it came up my mind. I was just doing like, you know, research, something inspired it. And I keep coming back to the idea that he was far more attached to his first work. I believe it was his first work. Yeah, it was. Uh, the, uh, and, the, the Fortunate Pilgrim, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. About his mother. And he, mm -hmm. and, and he went to his mm -hmm. deathbed, you know, com convinced that that was his seminal piece, his opus. Yep. But The Godfather sold. You know, yeah, right. exactly. He wrote, he wrote the mob book because he couldn't make a living off of writing the first book about his Italian family. Exactly. And I want to say, too, that like I want to make sure it's clear that it's not that this that there's not great stuff written out there by Italians and Italian Americans, but that I just literally didn't know they existed. I wasn't mature enough to like seek them out or something, you know, so I didn't either. So I, want to make I didn't clear. either. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I didn't grow up reading anything like that. I have to say, I think the first 
time I really, and it wasn't even Italian American writer. It was an Italian writer that I really started to walk into that world was the um, Italian writer, Natalia Ginsburg, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. writes incredible nonfiction as well, which is what I really started with. And I read mm -hmm. one piece of hers and I don't even remember where I came across it. It's called uh, Winter in Abruzzo. Oh, mama mia. I read that <laughs> and I was like, it, I, I don't know how to explain that. That little piece just was so encapsulating of all of these images that I had grown up with of mm -hmm. you know, the brutality and the beauty of Southern Italy and the style in which she writes that she's very well known for. And that was just like a doorway. I started reading more of her. And then, you know, down the road, I met these guys at Patton. Mm -hmm. John are like Italian, Italian American bibliophiles. So I, I really now I'm very much a very nice collection and I've read a lot, but like you, it's, mm -hmm. it's a failure of, right. I don't know who to blame. I don't know if we blame the wider media or we blame no, ourselves. No, no. We, we're not a literary people. I mean, mm. we're not a book readers. Like Gay Talese right. says. It, it, mm -hmm. It's right. not, I used to, I had a house full of books and my grandma used to say to me, well, once you read it, why don't you get rid of them? Because they're dust collectors. Yeah. My mom so, says that. So my grandma was like, but you read it, then get rid of it. And my grandma said, why do you buy all these books? My grandmother thought books were like, because I was good in school and I was smart, it was like a badge of honor. It's like something yeah. you put out like yeah. a cap of the Monte Wamp. You didn't have to read it. <laughs> you didn't have to read it. Just having it showed off, oh, you know, my kid is smart. He reads. But right. the actual act of reading to her was bizarre because someone said this and maybe it was... Um, I don't know who, I don't know, maybe it was Fred Gardafay. I don't know who said this. And he said that Italians are intrinsically anti-reading in the sense that Southern Italians in the, in the agricultural classes, because when to read, you have to kind of go away into a quiet place by yourself. And that's antithetical to their entire way of life. Yeah. So it's kind of like strange. Why are you going off in a corner when there's people around you talking and moving and reading when you could eat? Right. That you know, so... Why, why, getting... why would you read? Right. Because you have to understand the class of people that came here. I mean, you have to remember in Italy, if you take the period when Mussolini basically forced education on rural agrarian Italy, kids only went to like the fifth, sixth grade. Right. And they got rudimentary education. I mean, that was Italy up to what, the 80s? Oh, yeah. My parents, Chris, your parents, right? Same thing. Oh, yeah. Never went past third grade. Yeah. Yep. Right. And that's what they figured you needed. You could read basic right. stuff, do basic math. And the signora in the town, the well-to-do family, they produced doctors and lawyers and priests. And their kids read. And their yep. kids went to college. Maybe they went to a Benedictine seminary. I knew a guy who told me a great story. He was very smart in his hometown, Italy, in the 50s. And they had no high school. And his family couldn't send him away to high school. And the parish priest said to him, you're a very smart boy. I got to help you get an education. And he said to him, Make believe you want to be a seminarian. I'll contact the seminary. You go to the seminary and you're going to get a free education because at that time it was a high school seminary. Stay in there till you're about to graduate. And when you're about to enter the major seminary, say, oh, I changed my mind. I don't want to be a priest anymore. And when you come home on the summers, you walk around with the cassock and, you know, you just sound like you're interested in the seminary, but you're going to get an education. I was like, wow. Wow. You know, that that was but the priest saw it, but there was no physical means because the high school was many was towns away. There was no way for this kid to get a high school education. So I think that people were not. Um, I know another time woman speaks, she says all the time how brilliant her father was and her father had almost like zero, like, you know, maybe a third grade education. And her brother is an abs her brother's like an, a, a, a major American scientist. And she said, you know, genetically, that kind of scientist gene was in our family. She's like, my father would do all kinds of electrical engineering stuff with like a third grade education. And she said, if he had had the opportunity to go to school, his life would have been totally different. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of factors why we don't read. There's a lot of things yeah. you have to add in. It, should, it's, it was a part of our experience for better, for worse, but it is what it is. Well, I mean, there's so much in there. And it was, it was Gay Talese said that. And when he came on the show, uh, couple years ago, he said also that about Italian American writers, which is that there's not too many of us, quote unquote, for the same reasons. You have to go into a room and shut the door and close yourself away if you're going to write. And, and you have to is... reveal family secrets, which is another thing that we don't like. Exactly. We are not the people of the autobiography. Exactly. We're the people of the hagiography, 
every parent was a saint. Everybody, everybody, you know, there was no dysfunction. <laughs> there was no adultery, alcoholism, mental. And I'm not saying that in a bad sense. We're right. people that have an idea of what's socially acceptable. And we put that up. And whether it was true or not, that's the hagiography we sign on to. The tell-all book that, so, that shows skeletons, that, that, that is the ultimate act of betrayal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, Chris, I'd love to dissect this a little bit on the, on the mm-hmm. heels of that. What accounts then for the anomalies to this rule? You, Gates, Elise, Adriana, Trigiani, these are people mm-hmm. who really, they don't have day jobs. This is their job because as somebody who's written for a while and published and knocked on a lot of doors, sometimes the response you hear is from non-Italians who are the gatekeepers into publishing is that well italian americans don't read so it's just almost like they see an italian american story great you can write but like you know your people aren't going to buy it there's not a market that's what it comes down to so like how do you account for the successes of the few of you or let's invert that you know why is there only a few of you Well, I think you answered the question, right? The, yeah, I mean, when I, I when I first, well, no, 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 no. I mean, but when I, when I first, you know, the first time I heard that about Italian Americans don't buy books was from my literary agent ah. who said, you know, I love your book. I love your novel, which is again, the one I mentioned because from Madalena, my first novel about, you know, set in Italy and, and, you know, World War II love story, um, you know, meant to be literary, but definitely had a love story to it. And I, and I remember saying something like, well, you know, I, we really want to market it to Italian American communities and da, da, da. And she said, oh no, she's like, no, we're not, we're, they're not going to do that because Italian Americans don't buy books. Mm-hmm. So there's this prevailing, so not only do they not, you know, not reading is one thing, but not buying books is of course what they really That's care the about, thing. right? Right. <laughs> right. And so, so if yeah. they're not marketing it to Italian Americans, then the Italian Americans aren't getting the marketing message. So then they're not buying them and the cycle just repeats itself over and over again, right? So they're marketing it to people who have romantic ideas, you know, lowercase are romantic ideas about what Italian American culture is, which means they're playing on the stereotype. So that's why the stereotype keeps getting reinforced as to what an Italian American story is. It's a love story or it's a mafia story. You know, it's a romance, I should say, or it's a or it's, or, right. you know, it's under the Tuscan Like Captain sun. Corelli's it's, mandolin or something. Yeah. Exactly, right, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And so, and I do think Elena Ferrante changed everything, you know? Mm. Um, I really do. So I think good. That, um, that her kind of unsparingly brutal, you know, portrait, I mean, but, but all, which also had, of course, a lot, of, it had, I mean, it had a little bit of everything, of course, but, it, it, but it's so nuanced and so lyrically interesting and so challenging uh, literary, you know, to read. It's not like it's, it's not like it's fluff and yet it's not, you know, impossible to read either. So, so I really think that, that, that has changed quite a bit, but of course she is Italian. I mean, as far as we know, yes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> she is shrouded um, in mystery. Yeah. She scares me because yeah. does she not reveal her identity because she's not a Neapolitan. She's not Italian. Yeah. And she's trying to sell that. And she did, you know, um, I saw the HBO series. I didn't read the mm-hmm. book. I saw the first mm-hmm. series. Yeah, you have to read them. Um, I often wonder if I'm reading something translated in English, if I'm going to lose sense of... Read it in Italian. Food. Is it hard, though? Is it like Italian. that really heavy no. academic Italian? No. no, and there's a lot of Nabili Don in there. I mean, what I did was I read them in English, so I knew what I, the story was, and then I read them in Italian. It took me a lot longer, and but at least it was an exercise in helping my Italian too. But yeah, no, you could definitely read them. I think you'll love them. Oh, no, I, the, the HBO series, which was, yeah, absolutely. I was glued to the TV. I thought it was um, the, the post-war, <clears throat> the same engineer that I said that he came from, um, his father, the, the, he's, a, he's a brilliant science scientist, well-known in the United States. And his father was an electrical, um, a self-taught electrical engineer in Italy. He told me that growing up in Italy in the immediate years after the war, he was born during the war. He was the person to see the last throes of the medieval world. Hmm. And I feel Ferrante's books um, show a Naples that goes from a medieval world. It really was the medieval world and a very class-based society to the modern Italy, right? Yeah. It's, it's, like a, it's like a bridge where kids yeah. who were born in Italy in 2000s could never understand what their grandparents went through. 
you know, where the school teacher, she's kind, but she's very self-assured that she's better than the kids in her class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Ferranti, but I think that was all across Europe. That's what separates Americans from Europeans. You think it's thinking, all what? I think that's, I think that class system oh. was in every country in Europe. Europe is a class-based society. And I think Ferrante's book, you could translate it into any other European um, experience. I don't know if Scandinavia is the sense, but I think all Southern Europe, Ireland was like that, where it was very much a class system. This is a class system. You're poor. You're a peasant. And if we give you an opportunity for education, you're just lucky. Be yeah. thankful. That's, that's what I took out of Eleanor Ferrante's book. So I think that her yeah. books are, the setting is Italy, Southern Italy after the war. But I think the theme is the same. In the rest of Europe, you could just change the characters around and it's the same story. That's how, well, that's how I see her. Yeah, it's the first writing, uh, I should say modern writing especially, that penetrated an American audience about Italians or Italy that wasn't coded in, you know, this like, like, like Chris and I keep saying, like Under the Tuscan Sun, Captain Corelli's mm-hmm. Mandolin, or being mm-hmm. mafia. It's just this very real portrait. Yeah, we often sell Italy spaghetti, mandolin, tarantella, sunshine. Yeah. sunshine like I, I right. don't know how her the books, the I don't know how those experience. books did so well. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Chris, just to, to like go I back think, to what you were saying. I mean, I know yeah. why they did well, because they're great, right? right? But how did they get such an audience? Like, how did how did she penetrate through that marketing block that keeps happening? Yeah. Right? Do you know what I'm saying? And like reach such a wide audience. I think I could be wrong. You might, you, you might, you, you all may know more than I do, but I think they were bigger. They, they, again, I think there's a, it, it makes a difference that she's an Italian, not an Italian American. Agree. And that they started out getting attention in Italy, right? Mm. Which actually has obviously a reading culture, right? And, and so, and, and, and people kind of caught wind that there's something special happening over there in Italy. And then, and then the marketing kicked in, right? Okay, we're going to capitalize on this thing that's happening. And then I think the other crucial element is that it's really a story about women, right? It's women-centered. Yeah. It's about the kind of drama between these two women who are kind of two halves of the same consciousness in some level. So, and women are the biggest book buyers. Mm-hmm. So I think somebody somewhere got the right marketing idea and said, okay, this is something we can build on. Or it's just that, like you said, it was good and good stuff will find an audience. Right. You know, if the right moment, the right, the stars align in the universe, you know? Yeah. When someone gives it a chance. Exactly. Yeah. I think also a big factor is so many Americans now have traveled to Italy and they, Mm -hmm. their version of Naples is the Amalfi Coast. It's Campania. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more, we're in a more globalized world. It's a much easier sell to an American audience now in, you know, the last 10 years, because, you know, in 1960, even television was limited. How much of an understanding could you have get of of a place so far away? And I think now the world is so much more approachable. The foreign is not as foreign. It's much more familiar. So I think that that idea where... Like if you try to do it in the 1980s, it had to be a little bit like satirical, not satirical, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like cliche-ish, you know, like right. look at Shogun that came out in like 1980, the, the, the miniseries, right? You have to have like the geisha girl. You have to have very uh, stereotypical characters because that's what Americans recognized, right? That they may not be accurate, but they're what you expect to see. Mm-hmm. And you don't find that in Ferrante. No. Mm-hmm. They're authentic. But I think you had to have an evolution in Americans to be exposed to foreign cultures, like, you know, traveling that really opened the world up. I think Americans are a bazillion times better traveled now, especially millennials than people were 30 or 40 years ago. That's why I think it's easier to sell that stuff here now. Ah, summer, the time to get out and enjoy a little aperitivo picnic. Why not celebrate your Italian American pride too, and enter for your chance to win a Mediaset Italia picnic pack to take with you. It's easy. Just snap a pic that says Italian American to you, Post it to Instagram and tag it with the hashtag iHeartMediasetItalia. Be sure to also follow at MediasetItaliaUSA and you can win a picnic prize pack sent to you in the mail. New winners will be chosen every week. The picnic prize pack includes a picnic basket and blanket, a meat and cheese board, plates, utensil set, a pair of wine goblets, and a wine opener. Check out and follow at MediasetItaliaUSA on Instagram to find out more. And, after a long afternoon picnic, return home and enjoy summer entertainment on Mediaset Italia. 
there are new episodes of Temptation Island, Avanti Un Altro, and Chow Darwin, and drama series Mazantonio premieres in July. Yeah, I think in a globalized world, it's a lot easier for an audience of readership to transport themselves into something unfamiliar that feels a bit more familiar. You know, they've either been there or seen it or looked at it on social media and things like that. Chris, you, you talked about the fact that women are the majority readership and obviously your first book taking so much from your mother's immigrant experience, but you, your newest book is obviously titled Leading Men. Um, <laughs> so, so it runs in the opposite direction, I guess, in, in the, at least the title. It's on its way to becoming, I guess, a major motion picture, which is really exciting. Yep. I didn't know Made by Made by an Italian. <laughs> oh, yay. Yeah, better. So there, there's, a, yeah. there's another level of authenticity. T tell us a little mm -hmm. about the book and uh, what we can expect from it and from the movie. So this book, actually, even though it's my most recent book and came out just two years ago in 2019, is actually the book that I spent the most amount of time on. I actually started writing it in 1999. Um, wow. So I re really worked on it for 20 years off and on while I was writing three other novels and a book of essays. And I would always go back to it because I really fell in love with the main character who is an Italian-American, working class Italian-American guy from Peterstown, New Jersey, uh, named Frank Merlo, who was the partner of arguably the greatest playwright of the 20th century, Tennessee Williams. And um, Frank and Tennessee worked together for 15 years from 1949 to 1949-ish, 1963 and it was during that time that Williams wrote all of his most successful great plays. Chicago Named Desire right on the hill right on the heels of that, Cat and Hudson Roof suddenly last summer, all these great iconic American plays and after Frank died of lung cancer in 1963 at the age of 40, um, Williams never had another big hit. He lived for 20 more years, wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of other plays but never had another hit. And so people looked at Frank, again, this couldn't have been more different from Tennessee Williams, this guy. I mean, um, you know, again, very working class. He was driving a truck. Um, he wanted to be an actor. And people looked to him as part of the reason for Williams's magic, right? Part of the, um, not that he was his muse, but he had a, he, had a, he allowed for, um, he, he, he was kind, he kind of played, for lack of a better word, a kind of wifely role. He was the one who talked Williams down from his anxieties. He's the one who booked all the plane tickets. He's the one who made sure his shirts were ironed and all those sorts of things. But, but he gave him a sense of stability, which is something that Williams never had. And on some level, he was a kind of muse um, for certain things, like the play The Rose Tattoo, which just had a, a revival on Broadway starring Marissa Tomei, um, was a play about Italian-Americans that was, uh, existed purely because of Frank. And uh, that was the only play I think that won Williams an Oscar. So I really was deeply invested in telling this guy, this Italian American guy who was a lot like me, telling his story um, and, and kind of bringing him into the light so that people understood what his inner life was like, again, to go back to the inner life and to kind of, you know, put him in the, in his right, in the kind of rightful place in American literature, really. So I've been working on that, you know, for 20 years off and on, but I, I, I didn't know how to tell the story. I didn't think I was mature enough at 30 when I first came across his life to tell his story. And I think I had to live as, you know, a man in my own partnership with another man for, you know, for now for over 20 years to understand the kind of push and pull and power dynamics between uh, a couple to really be able to write that kind of story. And it's set in Italy mostly, right? Or it's all. Set, yeah, goes it's, back and forth. Um, it goes back and forth because there's a whole other storyline that I won't get into involving a woman as an actress. But the main story is that at, starts with a party thrown by Truman Capote in 1953 in Portofino. Um, that's where they uh, where the, the novel starts, and it and it takes place mostly in Italy in the 50s, um, with with Frank's story a little bit in Manhattan uh, because he died in Manhattan. Um, at Memorial Hospital in Manhattan. So, um, yeah. Is this your first work of historical fiction, you know, based on a real life? Based on an actual real person, yes. Although you could argue that my first two novels, which were inspired by my real life parents, right. also right. were kind of historical fiction. But, I mean, they are historical fiction, but they're also real people. But this is the, you know, I didn't put my mother's literal name in my other books, but 
you know, Frank Merlo is a character in Leading Men, Tennessee Williams is a character, Truman Capote is a character, et cetera, uh, in this book. So you have, you have a, little, a little bit less artistic leeway in that you have a, you know, a roadmap that has to be followed, right? I mean, what is it like writing fiction about real events and real people? Well, here's the dirty little secret, which is that it's actually so much easier <laughs> to write, you know, to write to write a novel in which the characters are are real people because so much of the work is already kind of done for you, right? You know how they, you know what they look like, you know uh, when they live and die, you know where they are at certain times. So, I mean, you have to do the work of describing that and bringing it to life, but you have it out there for you, and it shrinks the number of possibilities that you have where you second guess yourself. Or maybe I should make him you know, 10 years older, or maybe I should make him, you know, um, this type of person, you know, kind of who he was. So I had those parameters to work in. And, you know, I'm a Catholic, so I like the constraints. You know, I like having, I like having yeah. these rules. Form of, is know, freedom. Form is really freedom. Form is freedom. Yeah, just like discipline is freedom. It's Absolutely. People, yeah. Let me ask you a question. I know Delaware very, very well. Where did you grow up? Um, in in Wilmington. Um, to get my, off topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. No, because I want to get this uh, in, because you'll all wind up talking about, and I have a real Delaware interest in the conversation. Where'd you go to Sally's? Where'd you go to high school? I went to Sally's. I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that is the Sally's. creme de la creme. Sally's and Archmere. Absolutely. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Always rivals. And yeah, my parents, they moved to the Little Italy neighborhood right near St. Anthony. I know so uh, right many of those East. people. Yeah, I'm sure. That's awesome. I wonder if you know Chris's family. I yeah, would you know. I'm so sure. They're all from Eleven or Sultulshano. Okay. That's the vast majority. He'll find out you're related somehow by the time <laughs> yeah, he's done with you. That's what <laughs> We're all connected. Chris, did you feel pressure in putting words into famous mouths? Doing so, I always wonder when I read, you know, kind of yeah. fictionalized history, how do you make a decision? I know a lot of authors go through journals or letters or things like that. How, how do you make a decision to create the voice for someone who existed? That that seems like a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pressure. It was a lot of anxiety. That was, that was so much where my anxiety came from. But what I always point out to people is that A, Frank is really the main character. It's not a book about Tennessee Williams or about Truman Capote. They appear as characters, but it's not really. So I, I took deliberately the 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 non-famous person um for many reasons not because it was easier to write him but because i wanted to tell his stories but i did feel very anxious when it was time to i mean you can imagine a conversation between truman capote tennessee williams and frank where i have to they're the wittiest people in the world you know and i can't just reproduce what they've already said i have to come up with new material for them to say um, so I, those were the scenes I spent the longest time on, got, got feedback on from other people. And I did read their journals, read their letters. Um, I steeped myself in their work so that I could kind of try to channel their, their sensibility. And so, yeah, but that, I mean, I also wrote as part of this novel, talk about anxiety producing, like part of the novel includes a lost Tennessee Williams play that I actually wrote. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and so like it's a one act play but the, the saving grace is that it's meant to be a bad play so i felt like i could write a bad play <laughs> i could write a bad Williams play and put the whole whole entirety of it in the book so yeah there was yeah it, it requires it required a bit of daring you know chris before we spoke I, I read some of your earlier books and you did you were mm -hmm. generous enough to send me a copy of leading men which i, I hadn't mm -hmm. gotten to yet mm -hmm. but now after this conversation i'm re-inspired and i'm gonna read awesome. it i'm, I'm actually like feeling that kind of book right now um, but i i remember one thing i really remember from our conversation and before we wrap up i'd love for us just to talk about a little bit is you you kind of had a little bit of a revelation-ish moment when we were talking, I asked you about the Guggenheim that you received. Um, the Guggenheim being a, a very big accomplishment, very prestigious award. And you, we talked a little bit about how you received it for leading men. And when we were talking, you kind of had this moment where you said, wow, I mean, maybe I received it because it wasn't such an Italian American story. Absolutely. Yeah, I was kind of going like trying to ask you about that, you know, because this is something that's always on my mind, meaning, you know, your first three books weren't 
literary enough or whatever you want to put the quotes around to receive such a prestigious, well-established award. And then here you are with a new angle and it's in Italy and there's these famous um, American writers. So I just want, you want to talk about that for a second. Yeah, I think it's sad, but true that I think that having the Tennessee Williams character who is, you know, an accepted, credible, like literary figure kind of gave cover to the fact that this is actually an Italian story and gave mm. it a kind of seriousness that maybe the other books didn't appear to have. Whether or not they were right. literary is a different story. I thought they were. Right. But because they didn't have a kind of cover of something so serious and literary, they weren't taken as seriously. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, we, I think we talked about this too, like the marketing, the way they were wanting to market those three first three books was very much yeah. playing on the stereotypes and playing on the romantic idea. Whereas with leading men, they were not as invested in, even though it was set in Italy and about an Italian American, they were not marketing it so much as, you know, an Italian story. They were marketing as a literary story about, exactly. about literature. I mean, about a literary figure, you know? Right. Um, right. And so right. then, so that's suddenly when the, the literary establishment is, accepting me you know um i will say though that the guggenheim is meant to be a it supports a project but it's also meant to be a reflection of your entire career your body um mm-hmm. so your body, body of work, work so, i mean yeah yeah body of work yeah. <laughs> your physical body <laughs> oh god no yeah I wouldn't any god help us that. all <laughs> but, uh, yeah right exactly um so i did take some heart in you know in in that as well so sure. you um, you'd yeah. certainly proven yeah. yourself and right. and you know, wrote these beautiful books. What was, what was it that they wanted to name your first book, title your first book? Oh my God. Yeah, it was, um, it was, uh, oh my God. It was something like a night. No, no, it wasn't a night in the piazza. That was what the, um, I think it was something like a kiss in the piazza or something. And there was at no point in the book, a kiss in a piazza, right? (laughs) But they just wanted to call it a kiss in a piazza because that's what they thought people would. And, And I had to fight to get them to airbrush out a figure of an accordion player under a tree on the cover uh, of, of the amazing. book. It's amazing. Yeah. If yeah. you ever, if you ever so. feel like when people tell you, when people tell you that there's no Italian American community anymore, you can come back to these kind of conversations and say, well, when it comes to what people think we're not qualified for, not uh, going to support, you know, yeah. they always tell you in, in sort of that way. Like I yeah. am f- totally flummoxed by the idea that there's a, an accordion player uh, inserted into the cover. I mean, it's like when the EU was deciding for non-written uh, symbols for each nation. They wanted some sort of symbolic icon that they could use so mm. you know, it didn't have to be based on people's uh, ability to read. And the I think it was the British delegation was sort of tasked with compiling these things and their proposal for the Italians was a pizza. And I thought, oh you know, and the Italians were outraged, rightfully so, but it was like, you know, this is 57%. Why should they be outraged? It's a Neapolitan product. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's not throughout the world. I, I, don't, I don't take offense with a pizza. I'm with you. 57% of the UNESCO yeah, World yeah. Heritage Sites are in Italy. You'll never be the pizza. Be. I'm sorry. <laughs> no one's going to argue the that pizza's bad. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to throw a pizza under a bus. No, but no, I, think, I, think, I think WASPy, the, the reading classes, confuse our emotiveness with stupidity. That's because we're not restrained that we have to be stupid. I've seen this. They think that if you are that is one hundred percent right. Yeah, Hmm. that is very well Mm -hmm. as usual, Pat. Very like nicely summed up. I don't think I'd ever Mm -hmm. thought of it that way. So, what's the consensus before we wrap up here? Italian Americans do read. Italian Americans will read Italian American mm-hmm. stories if they know they're out there. I mean, look at me and Chris, two mm-hmm. very literary people, writers. We didn't grow up reading Italian American stories. We, besides The Godfather, we didn't even know they were out there. I think they need permission. I think I think mm-hmm. they they not, they not only need to be marketed toward, but they need permission to, as Patrick was saying earlier, to say I'm not I'm going to take my time to read, and that means I'm not gonna clean. I'm not going to cook dinner. I'm not going to socialize, whatever it is. And that's okay. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's not a rejection of my culture. It's actually an embrace of myself, right? An embrace of the, it values my time in a different way. And it it actually can value my culture. If I'm reading, 
I'm not saying Italians should only read about Italians or about Italian culture either, right? right of course not. So yeah. um, just read anything, right? Uh, I mean, that's what happened to, you know, to my mother. I alluded to this briefly earlier before the show that she really thought that reading was what American women did instead of cleaning their house, right? That, that like, is and, my grandmother. <laughs> my grandma answered yeah. 100%. That is the greatest. Yeah. That should be put on a t-shirt. Absolutely. Amazing. That was my grandma's question. When they have time to, when they have time to clean their house. Absolutely. Exactly. It was seen as laziness. That's not your job. Exactly. Men read exactly. because men wow. have to represent the family on the outside and make money yep. so we can eat because it all comes down to yep. getting that better cut of meat. Yeah, hundred exactly. percent. What does she need a book? Exactly. I yeah, because how many times have I heard? Why was I going to send my daughter to school? She was just going to be somebody else's wife. Yeah, that yep. that was our worldview. Yes, a hundred percent. But see, I think a lot yep. of listeners. We have a lot of listeners who um, I'm really amazed by the listeners that we have. They a lot of them didn't grow up in an Italian community, or they had a tangential connection to an Italian part of their family. So they hear they hear stuff like this, and I think they 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 jump on assumptions that popular culture gives them. The mother, the patriarch, was the highest person in the family, right? right. That's why everywhere in Italy you have the, the Madonna's everywhere, right? We're we're mm-hmm. a religion where Catholicism of the mother, right? What's Good Friday? You know, Mary lost her son. That's the Italian worldview. But it was seen that the mother's job was to run the household. And the man was the public figure. And he had a read to hold up the family's honor, reputation. But he didn't have to read for the sake of reading. Because everything you needed to know, you learned in the family. There was no outside book that was going to be smarter than your mother. So it was almost like a prop almost. There was no intellectual curiosity on in that sense. I don't think it was really encouraged. So the idea is like, you know, Conchetta, take care. Don't read a book. Take care of the house because having a beautiful house with Capodimonte lamps and plastic on the furniture because the material of the couch is so nice, that is the highest form of existence. And if your your son is reading, it's because he's going to get a good profession and then he's going to marry a good wife and, and they're going to have an additional Capodimonte lamp because he has more buying power. But the integrity <laughs> of the household is really what's important. I don't, so I think a lot of people think it's a sexist view, but I don't think it's an intrinsic condescension as much as it is your job yeah. is to raise well-groomed children and have a, a nice house. Your husband's job is to go out and make money. And the highest level of our existence is sitting down as a Sunday on a Sunday as a family to eat. I really think that the, the things are changing. I'm, I see so many amazing writers who are telling versions either fiction or nonfiction of our story and I see a community where maybe it's just the, the time of assimilation people are are hungry for this stuff and, and obviously you know Christopher has a successful career that is breaking through those misconceptions and and you know here you are we talk about your body of work and awards like the Guggenheim Fellowship and you know, a motion picture coming out which is unfortunately in America usually a sign of uh of you made it uh, you made it right <laughs> yeah. whether, whether that's a good thing or not but i mean that's so, when your family's really going to be proud of you <laughs> yeah oh, <that's laughs> right. oh i'm sure they'll all they'll, they will all go to the movie i will tell you i will, I will totally yeah they won't read the book but they're guggenheim schmuggenheim no they're gonna tell you you read the book and tell me what's inside what's inside the book i don't have time but when they come over next time tell me what's inside i'm sure you did a good job yeah that's <laughs> but I'm really glad to meet an author like you, Christopher, who's who's taking on this uh, this misconception and and breaking through these barriers and and doing it with obvious accomplishments. So congratulations on all of your work, and it's been a pleasure. Before we go, just tell our audience if you if you would, if it's not too secretive, what are you working on now? Oh, <laughs> oh well, first of all, thank you so much for for having me on. I love to, I love talking to you all. Um, and this is, you know, this is my favorite topic to, uh, you know, to discuss, like my culture and not just my books, but, but like actually yeah. our culture, the culture that we share. And, I, and um, so, uh, so I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and I'm, I'm struggling through a, 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 a new novel right now that's actually, um, I'm trying to write a, a comic novel, believe it or not. I don't know if I've been funny at all in this, in this interview, <laughs> but, uh, but um, I think maybe Patrick should write my, my book. But, uh, oh, but, thank uh, you. That's quite a but, compliment. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm trying to write a, a comic novel, but that actually, I can't say too much because I'll ruin it for myself. Not sure. for, I'm not, not being secretive, but I want, I'm actually taking an iconic comic novel from 
a different culture and basically writing an Italian version of it. Ooh, um, so that's that's all I that's all I will say at the moment. Well, well we... we'll keep an eye out for that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Fatso? Boy. I haven't. It is the greatest Italian American movie that was ever made. This is like an ongoing <laughs> argument. Okay. You you should you should consider a remake of Fatso. <laughs> I'll get, I'll get right on that. Anne Bancroft said same. it was her same. I don't even need him to see it. He won't. <laughs> Anne Bancroft. Anne Bancroft said that it was the greatest movie she ever made. And that can't. She Anne Bancroft starred in it with Dom DeLuise. If you can get past okay. the first ten minutes. Oh, that's the okay. best part. Here I we will, go again. She hates Moonstruck. She, you hate all the fun. <laughs> you want these dramatic, like uh, Grecian, you know, I dramatic. Want, I want. You know, like Elena Ferrante. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want that. I know. Take us seriously. You got no, We can laugh at ourselves too. We, we, it yeah, has to we be a balance. We are, I don't need other people laughing. No, but that's funny. We are funny sometimes. <laughs> The world, the world okay, needs I'm looking us. forward to your comic uh, novel because I'm sure it'll be terrific <laughs> and classy. Uh, here we go. Things that I feel like those oh, movies good. lack. I wouldn't mind hearing Christopher's take on Fatso too. That would be a great. Watch uh, Fatso. You gotta watch Fatso. <laughs> Maybe we should do a watch along with in the Wells. Anti-Fatso. I will check it out. Anti-Moonstruck. I also love Moonstruck though, so I don't know. It's not my favorite. Yeah. I'm very much in the minority with that. I'm a clearly, clearly. Yeah, you are. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. Well, we will have Christopher back to either tell us about his newest work when it comes out or to dissect Fatso together. Mm-hmm. Send a message. I, I liked Fatso, and then we're done. Mm-hmm. She's going to like it. Yeah. And we're not going to tell her. Episode. We'll never tell her. I'll say I never heard from that kid. I don't know where he went. He's nowhere, somewhere. He's gone, and we're going to know. Uh, I just want well, satisfaction because I know I'm right with this. But that's that's. Well, I know, Christopher, now at least you know you have Pat to mind for comic, uh, for comic inspiration. So exactly. It's been a great pleasure having you on. I highly encourage everybody to go out and read the book, particularly the newest one, Leading Men, before it gets made into a motion picture. Let's uh, let's get it straight yeah. from the mouth of the horse. Exactly. And a wonderful <laughs> author, Christopher Castellani, who's been a, a great guest and talked about some really interesting stuff today. So for everybody out there, we hope you've enjoyed. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time. to be great. See that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano.